It's Friday, June 2nd, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. When they came for the beer, that one sponsored a commercial of Cedric the Entertainer sliding down the hill in a portage on, I said nothing. When they yelled at Target to tuck their pride offerings in the back of the store, I said nothing. But now they come for the filet. 11 Alive, Atlanta has details. Chick-fil-A is the latest company caught up in the culture wars. On May 29th, this tweet about the fast food company went viral. It claims Chick-fil-A just hired a vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion and asks people to vote if they should boycott the company. But did Chick-fil-A really just hire a vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion? No, they didn't just hire him. They gave him a sweet office, a good title, and a pension, from what I'm told. This goes deep. The forces against wokeness have put in their crosshairs, their skewed badly and out-of-date crosshairs, a company that I thought we still had to boycott from the other side if you wanted to be social justice So yeah, the deal with Chick-fil-A are they are a very Christian company. They are closed on Sundays. They are quite evangelical. They have made some apologies and inroads to the gay community after being very unfriendly because of the, see earlier, Christian evangelical stuff. But they are a Fortune 500 company. And having a director of DEI, it's pretty much mandatory these days. I know. You know, I've been pro-gay rights ever since I really thought about it. I'm not a hero. Well, okay, you want to call me that? Fine. But I've not been a to-the-barricades type, chain myself to the Alabama Statehouse kind of guy. Yeah, you know, gay rights, sure. Gay marriage makes sense. No good arguments against it. Gays should marry if they want to marry. Gays should have a parade if they want to have a parade. Gays should not get discriminated against, which actually this one isn't on them. This is on the rest of us or everyone. We got to commit to that one. But I kind of thought that in taking these stances, again, not a hero, and in taking these stances and aligning myself with this general philosophy, there would be certain affiliations or outward signifiers that an adherent to such a stance might be associated with. And I thought that these, say, brands might be a little edgier, a little more daring. To show your commitment to huge progressive causes is to now drink Bud Light, shop at Target, and eat a Chick-fil-A? There's a word for this, people, and that word is basic. It's kind of disappointing. I wasn't holding out for leather chaps, but you know... If I were to be, say, offered a rhinestone onesie and a pomegranatini, I would certainly demurely turn it down, but it would be nice to have been offered those things. Bud Light? Chick-fil-A? Disappointing. So much less exciting than I'd hoped. On the show today, and first, let me say, before I tell you what's on the show, want to make note, I did not say assless chaps. Why? Chaps, by definition, are assless. Want to make that clear. I'm always hearing references to the assless chaps. They're just chaps, people. On the show today, some big cases, and woe be to SCOTUS if they blow this about WOTUS. But first, T.C. Boyle is the author of about 30 novels. His method is to get very interested in something in the real world. He can't help himself, so it might be gene splicing, animal intelligence, species die-off, social media, and then let it work its way into fiction, slowly winding as it constricts and then consumes him, rather like a snake. Which brings me to Blue Skies, the new novel, A Woman, Her Family, Her Burmese Pythons, An Environmental Catastrophe. Said, of course, California and Florida. T.C. Boyle up next.
This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. T.C. Boyle is one of America's great novelists. He's now out with his 19th novel, in addition to many, many short stories. It is called Blue Skies, and it's about, well, Florida, California, Burmese pythons, and several T.C. Boyle themes, generations, that's always a theme, the environment, another huge theme, the sentience of animals, yet another theme, and just the futility in training our eyes on what the world is becoming around us. Hello, Tom. Welcome to The Gist. Well, thanks so much, Mike. Yes, I love your little lead-in to the book. I am obsessed with our environment and our place in it as animals who deny that we're animals. And nonetheless, we wind up uh, screwing the earth over. Uh, One of the uh, impulses for this book was um, something I'd read in the newspaper around 2017, this amateur German entomological society have been tracing insects for, you know, 50 years. Flying insects, flying insects are in massive decline. And I wondered, well, okay, what about the food chain? You know, <laughs> where, what are we going to have to eat if the insects die off? And that's why we get the entomological thread in this particular book. Right. You have a character who's an entomologist. You have a character who is a tick expert. Uh, how do you pronounce that? An acarologist. And he dates dates an acarologist. And is that asking for trouble? Yeah, especially (laughs) because you're an expert in a blood-sucking species. But I do want to, what do you think about the effort to sterilize mosquitoes? Um, The experts say, actually, don't worry about it. This is a better way than just, you know, certainly massive DDT. But have you thought or looked into that? Yeah, it's completely insane. Because, again, speak of the food chain. What creatures rely on mosquitoes for food? Uh, it's completely nuts. I don't mind what the, you know, sending out uh, sterilized males so that right. they don't reproduce as much. But to eliminate a species altogether is begging for disaster. And so, for instance, in blue skies, another of my obsessions is invasive species. And we have a, a young party girl in this book, a cat, she's 26. And she buys a Burmese python in Florida in order to have a fashion accessory, wear it around her neck because it's got a beautiful pattern like a top in anthropology. And she's not really thinking of the repercussions of this. As we know, of course, the Burmese python is banned because it has established itself in the Everglades and decimated all of the mammal species. All the mammalian species in the Everglades are gone. Yeah, more than decimated, right? It's eradicated Gone. them. Eradicated. Those cute little foxes, the, you know, shrews, everything. <laughs> Give way to the python. Yeah, and all because of our own carelessness. And by the way, uh, on my uh, uh, tour last week, I was with my publicist. We drove from St. Petersburg to Miami. Across the Everglades on the Tamiami Highway, we had one bug hit the windshield the whole time. A single mm. bug. Can you imagine? Remember, you know, years ago, you'd have to stop the car every hour to clean this goop off the windshield. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
So I guess it makes us feel, if we care, let's say we, are, we were Sufists and we care about killing every bug. Now we can feel good about it as we take Alligator Alley or across Florida trip. There is no evidence that we're engaged in an, an insect genocide. But in fact, the speciocide has occurred prior to our windshields even encountering a bug. So maybe it takes us off the hook or the Sufist off the hook. But in fact, we really are uh, eliminating all these insects. Yeah, we didn't notice. We didn't notice what was going on. And of course, a lot of what I write is built on ironies. And we have multiple ironies here. For instance, the mother of Kat, Atali, she's sort of like me. She wants to do her part to reduce the carbon footprint. So instead of eating meat, she has begun to integrate insects into her diet. Little realizing that even at that level, we are beginning to see a decline of insects. Not the kind of things that she would eat, like crickets, for instance, not yet, but certainly the flying insects, which means that uh, bats are going to be in big trouble. There's nothing for them to eat. Insectivorous birds, uh, you're not going to hear as many bird songs in the morning. Everything is, you know, all the, the species are being depleted. So our world is, is smaller in terms of what we're going to encounter. All, all I've got in this neighborhood, by the way, is crows. Yeah. Thousands of crows, no, no songbirds, no nothing. And crows are what is called a commensal species. That is, they eat at our table, like coyotes and raccoons and possums. Everything else that needs a more specialized environment is being eradicated simply because they don't have an environment anymore. Everything I've, I've done probably my entire life in, in fiction is the result of my being baffled about living on this planet. Here we are, we've we're beautiful species. We're talking to each other on little TV screens and there's beautiful microphones. I've got plenty to eat. But um, why are we here? What is it? Uh, why are there no answers to anything? How come everything always gets worse? How come the environment is so depleted? So I try to imagine what it would be like. You may know, uh, Mike, that in the year 2000, I wrote A Friend of the Earth. Yeah. Uh, talking about these very things. There's a, a pandemic in it. There's uh, there are floods and fires. The terrible you weather. Set, you set that in 2025. Yeah. Yeah. So and 25 so, years ahead, you made these predictions. Exactly, right. and uh, you know, um, it had already come true by 2015. I thought I'd be long dead. I thought it'd be 2050 by we see by the time we would see the collapse of everything. It's already here. So I wrote Blue Skies to now see what's happening. What's it like for regular people to live with all these catastrophes, weather catastrophes, especially right now? Yeah, it's been noted that sci-fi authors are better at predicting the future than the people at DARPA who are supposedly experts and are paid to predict the future. And that Robert Heinlein gave us more of an insight into the technology that we'd be living with in 20 years than anyone from the government. Why do you suppose that is? Because they have creative minds now. Uh, why doesn't DARPA pay me? <laughs> tell them tell them to send me a check and I'll do more predicting. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think it might have something to do with, I don't know, when you ask some someone who's a real scientist to predict the future, they are linear, you know? Well, if if right now we're at X, let us just play this out. Let's look at the curve. In 20 years, we'll be at 3X or 10X. Whereas a really creative person goes in angles, is orthogonal. And that's some of the things that I find in your work. Yeah, that's that's great. I, I mean, I on, on the plane last week, I watched 2001 without sound. Mm -hmm. Just I'm reading a book, I look up and, uh, yeah, it's a computer glitch in that. But the computer is the size of my house. 
no one's foresaw that the computer that's sitting in my pocket now is much more powerful than anything like that. So we can't always see what direction things are going in and how radically it's going to change our lives. Right. Again, I address this a lot in the short stories because then I can just punch out ideas like the Relive Box, for instance, which is about gaming and the ultimate gaming and being absorbed in it. Or as you said, Are We Not Men? about uh, gene editing. What are, the, what are the repercussions for all of us from this? We, we just take it casually. It just happens. And here we are. Gotcha. So I, what I want to know is you are naturally oriented to look at the world through a satirical lens. That's just how you are. And it comes off great in your books. Um, and so while at the same time, if we said, okay, what's your prediction? They would be very dire predictions. So you have very dire predictions paired with a mindset uh, not falling to pieces around the dire predictions. Is there a way to train oneself to see the world for all its, um, for all its flaws and all its tendencies towards entropy, but not be personally driven crazy by it? No, I have personally been driven crazy by it. I'm a gibbering maniac, you know, um, I can't help it. But I create stories in order to try to sort out my feelings. I've never written anything where I thought, oh man, this idea will really sell, let's go with it. No, I'm just an artist and I'm trying to respond to everything I see around me, which is crazier and crazier along the lines that we've been talking about here. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about that scene. It's around exactly page 100, around exactly. Thank you. I'm thinking around that scene. Uh, it, it occurs at uh, page 100 of the novel. It's a dinner scene and the different family members are essentially yelling at each other or making their points about Kat's decision to adopt these Burmese pythons. And the brother Cooper is livid and the mother is, I guess, trying to see a little both sides and both of it. And the father is just trying to withdraw. Um, that's interesting. It's very interesting. And Kat's a little oblivious and she shouldn't be, as her brother says, you know, you were raised with people who are very aware of ecology and you have to know what you're doing is wrong. So it's really interesting from a family dynamic. I was wondering though, if there was anything else going on there, like, does it play out? Does it maybe reflect discussions you've had with friends or even your own contemplation of just how given the same set of facts, different kinds of people with different predilections might come to a discussion like that? Hmm. Well, I give shows and I love to do it. I love to perform. I love to do a QA. and uh, I love to be on, uh, on your show. I like to voice opinions. But in fiction, you don't voice opinions. You seduce the reader and you create a scenario which the reader can enter and make decisions for him or herself. So the family dynamic just seemed a natural thing. The book progresses. I don't have an outline. It just progresses day by day, scene by scene. And in this one, of course, we have Kat, who's oblivious. We have the mother who's trying to do her best, as we all, most of us are. And then we have her brother, Cooper, who is a more strident environmentalist, as so many are. You know, uh, I wrote a book a few years back called When the Killing's Done, about the removal of invasive species from Santa Cruz Island, which is right outside my window here. Um, 
Afterward, on the tour for the book, often afterward, people would come up to me who are field biologists. And they would say to me, well, you know, we've been telling people about this for years, but nobody pays any attention because you don't want to be lectured to. You don't want to be told what to do. And they said, but you are dramatizing it and you can have a greater effect. Great. Hallelujah. But I don't write books in order to have a political effect. I, wrote book, I write books for my own purposes to figure out things that are impossible to figure out. Yeah. And I will never figure out. But if I were, so we talked about, you know, what if DARPA, we didn't actually literally talk about it, but we compared DARPA and and science fiction writers. So people have said, why doesn't DARPA, why doesn't the government just hire science fiction writers? Let's say environmental communicators wanted to tap the expertise of a T.C. Boyle. So we're not asking you to write a novel or asking you about the craft of writing a novel. But what do you think, from what you've learned, what's the most effective way to communicate some of these points about what the field biologists are all seeing? Is it, is it the Cooper way? Is it the mother way? What's, what's the best way? Well, we have to step back from that for a moment and wonder, does it make a difference? Does it make a slightest bit of difference, whatever we do? Because we are headed for doom, that's for sure. Um, I grew up among a coterie of wise-ass kids in Westchester County. And um, my response to everything is to worry constantly. You know, I read the LA Times every morning. I just get up and I want to kill myself. Um, but as a satirist, I like to make fun of things. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're, we're all on our way to death, individually and collectively. Well, what about it while we're here? This is what art is for. Art, the other animals don't produce art, but we do. Um, it's a way of relating to the mystery we talked about at the opening of the show. Where are we? Why are we? Who are we? Uh, why are we able to talk about it as we are now, and yet, we have no answers. Science and religion are equally voodoo because they don't give us a definitive answer of why. Yeah. So we have fun in the moment and we try to have a culture and the culture works through our arts and through the conversation like what we're having right here, Mike. I mean, we could talk for hours about the human condition. What else is there? Right. And we could never assuage the other one with uh, an intellectual answer to answer the questions of what is the point. Right. But nonetheless, I, yeah. as an environmentalist, I'm not waving placards. I'm writing books. And yeah. in my property here, it's uh, about an acre and a half. Uh, I have put in all native plants, including milkweed for the monarchs. The monarchs uh, have a traditional roosting place out in the backyard here. They've come here for eons before people were here. And uh, their numbers declined radically. 30 years ago, there were thousands. It would be like confetti. Uh, recently, there are hardly any. But as in the book, there is some hope because we have seen an uptick in their numbers lately. And I've planted milkweed. Uh, everybody listening should plant milkweed because this is what monarchs need in order to hatch their eggs and, and raise the caterpillars to pupate and become more butterflies. Only milkweed. It has to be milkweed. Huh. When you write about, oh, I was going to uh, ask, have you ever been bitten by a Burmese python? But I want to ask a broader question. When you write about experiences that your characters can experience, so nothing sci-fi, but character eats bugs, character is bitten by a Burmese python, knows how, to, <laughs> knows how to react, knows not to let the teeth dig in. How much do you, as the author, seek out those very experiences so you could best describe them on the page? 
I know everything. I know everything uh-huh. there is to possibly know. My my hobby is to read books about nature and the environment in the way other people might read thrillers. So sometimes my own experience isn't directly involved. It is fiction. But in this case, in a weird sort of voodoo way, it was. So I wrote the chapter in which Cooper, the entomologist, goes out with his girlfriend, the acarologist, to collect ticks. You drag a, a sheet through the chaparral and you see what falls on it. But it was a windy day because, you know, out here we're having tremendous weather dislocation. And so the sheet flaps. They don't catch anything. What are they going to do? Well, they're going to go to the bar and dance and get high and have fun. At the end of the scene, Cooper's at his house. His girlfriend's waiting for him in bed. He goes in, takes off his shirt, and he notices a tiny tick attached to his forearm. End of chapter. Then I wrote uh, the next Otterly chapter, then a cat chapter. In the process, though, I went out into the chaparral, and I came home and took off my shirt, and there was a tick larva affixed to my forearm. Really eerie. And in my case, I've had Lyme several times, and this is the second time I've had cellulitis, which Mm -hmm. is a bacterial infection of the skin that a tick can give you. And it can be quite serious. It could proceed to necrotizing fasciitis, sometimes it, uh, to limb loss, etc. So I immediately inflicted this on Cooper. <laughs> so uh, in writing it in this weird voodoo way, this happened to me. And I was able to, to let the character suffer. And by that, maybe learn how it could have happened to me. But for your encounter with this tick, the character of Cooper would have retained both arms. Correct. Ah. Correct. And now we have a man who is uh, abridged, as he likes to say. (laughs) He is abridged. Um, And it opened up a whole new world for me. So I have to bless that little tick. And furthermore, you know, as an altruist and an environmentalist, I like to go up there and feed them. Mm -hmm. I mean, how are their babies going to survive if somebody doesn't go feed them? Mm -hmm. I don't know. One could argue that maybe that's (laughs) not the highest priority. But there is something... There is something really potent and interesting about what you do, what one does when they get a tick bite, which is to circle it and track it, right? Yes. In this case, by the way, Mike, I, 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 telemedicine, because it was height of COVID. So I held up my forearm to the, to the screen and my doctor said, oh yeah, okay, so draw a line around that with a magic marker to see if it's spreading, because this would be an indication of something really bad. Well, it did. It not only spread past that, but all to the, uh, the upper side of my arm as well. And it was touch and go for about a week until finally the clindamycin began to kick in, and it did clear up after a couple of weeks, yeah. but it was touch and go for a while there. And this is so great. <laughs> draw a line around it. Yeah, but... The map of my arm then became its entire red inflamed horrible thing. The imagery of that and the symbolism of that is so great. Think about applying that to any other ailment, right? Either physical or I don't know, I've been having, I've been dwelling on some depressive thoughts. Draw a line around your thoughts. See how far afield your thoughts go and then we could, uh, then we can come back to where you originally were and we could see, oh my God, they've since uh, broken out of their limitations. And so we remove your brain. <laughs> and by the way, the next tick that got me, and that was just this year got me in the crotch. Ah. But, you know, it's easier to remove your forearm than it is to remove your crotch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a different sort of abridgment, would it not? Yes. Yes. 
T.C. Boyle is the author of such books as The Road to Wellness, The Terranauts. Oh, that was a good one. And the newest one is Blue Skies. It's about, oh, a woman who loves snakes, but they don't love her back. T.C., <laughs> thank you so much, Tom. All right, my dear fellow. Thank you. And, you know, T.C. Boyle was so fascinating. We have more of him in our extended interview, which we offer on the Pesca Plus option tier of support. Go to subscribe.mikepesca.com or you could simply opt for the ad-free version of the gist. Pesca Plus will give you things ad-free, but the ad-free version doesn't give you more of the show. It gives you less of the parts of the show that you might want to avoid in the first place. Like this, coming up next. And now the spiel. So I'm not here to tell you that SCOTUS hasn't been taking away rights we once had and veering towards a much more pro-business, less pro-worker mindset. Because I'm not going to pee on your leg and tell you it's raining. Although, side note, sidebar, if I were Judge Judy, I would double up security when it starts to get overcast because, you know, people are coming up to her when it starts to rain and be like, hey, Judge Judy, it's raining. And then subtly on the sly, they're tinkling on her leg just so they could take pictures and post it on the socials and dunk on Judge Judy. I peed on her leg and told her it was raining. Right. So that is one rule of life. Don't pee on your leg and tell you it's raining. Another is there is a difference between spoiling the milk and killing the cow. Words of wisdom from the mouth of Chief Justice John Roberts in a case that I thought was fairly decided, and you know who else did? Eight of the nine justices. It's part of a couple decisions that don't seem to represent a horrible partisan takeover. One was the one I just talked about, Glacier versus Teamsters Local Union 174. One was an 8-1 decision, and the other was a 9-0 decision, and both of these are being cited by people who worry about the court's conservative tilt. Huh, let's examine. Well, in Glacier v. Teamsters, the Supreme Court ruled 8-1 with Katanji Brown-Jackson being the one They ruled in favor of the company, Glacier, a cement maker. They ruled against the union, all right? I guess that's all the headline makers and the journalists needed to hear that they ruled against the union. Here are some headlines. CBS News, Supreme Court limits right to strike in Glacier Northwest v. Teamsters ruling. Here's how it affects workers. Vox, the Supreme Court deals another blow to labor unions. The Supreme Court's new decision is a significant blow to workers' right to strike. Okay, so what was this significant blow? SCOTUS, all of SCOTUS, except for Katanji Brown Jackson, ruled in favor of the cement company that suffered damage when striking Teamsters purposefully left wet concrete in the trucks to harden and to ruin the concrete. It became useless and cost the company tens of thousands of dollars. The court went through a bunch of analogies trying to figure out what to compare spoiled concrete to. Justice Jackson likened it to a certain substance that the common law holds we shouldn't cry over. Your bottom line is the concrete is a perishable. It, it, it equals the milk for the purpose of your argument. Justice Sotomayor invoked a heretofore undocumented dairy-based life form. What do we do with the NLRB case of the cheese people? the cheese people. In the end, the concrete was accepted to be concrete, a substance that could be ruined if the people charged with not ruining it timed their walk-off to ruin it. 
As with all Supreme Court cases, there are layers of complexity. There was a labor relations board. The Teamsters said, no, we should listen to them. No, we should listen to state law, said Glacier. But the Teamsters were not disallowed to strike. They weren't punished for striking. What happened was the company that had their cement ruined was allowed to get reimbursed. The CBS coverage had a chapter heading titled Chilling Effect. If only we were talking about milk, then the chilling effect would be welcomed. But that story continues. Chilling effect, the latest decision is likely to chill employee activism because it could make workers financially liable for damages to their employer if they stop work, according to Sharon Block, executive director of the Labor and Work-Life Program at Harvard Law School. That CBS report quoted no other outside expert other than Block who advanced the notion that employees would be less likely to strike if they can also break some things while doing so. The New York Times, to its credit, quoted multiple outside experts differing perspectives, offering analysis, good story, but it did have this line, which isn't a bad line, but did get me to thinking. The decision, which some experts said could cause unions to reconsider striking or take a more cautious approach when a perishable product could be harmed. But those are two very different things. Yeah, I agree with the overall sentiment, but if you break it down into parts, it could cause a reconsideration of striking. I think not. Or It could cause strikers to take a more cautious approach when a perishable product could be harmed. Well, yes, I think that will happen. And I also say, good. After you and I got in a disagreement, I punched you in the nose. The court ruled that your lawsuit could proceed. Well, that could quash my free speech rights, or it could cause me not to regard punching you in the nose as a rightful expression of my free speech rights. I bring up Not to cry over spilt milk, but to note with sadness, with lachrymosity, if you will, that it is rare to find coverage that correctly contextualize the ruling, other than, oh, yet another one in the long stretch of anti-union rulings. A union lost, but maybe sometimes the union should lose on merits, because they had the worst case, and ruling for the union would have been injustice. And don't come for me on that one. Sotomayor, Kagan, they're with me on this. Another case where the two justices agreed, along with seven others, was Sackett versus EPA. Sorry if I'm recapping a case you might be familiar with, or maybe you didn't know this, that SCOTUS took notice of WOTUS. WOTUS, in this case, are the waters of the United States. And the case occasioned much parsing of whether waters were adjacent or adjoining. That that there will be wetlands that cannot be readily be distinguished from adjoining waters. But you're, right? you're assuming your def- Oh, sorry. Go ahead. You're assuming the adjacent. You're, you're assuming that we adopt your... I'll save it for my, my round. That's fine. <laughs> adjacent waters. Adjacent. The term adjacent wetland. There are two adjacent apartment buildings. Do they have to be touching each other? Adjacent. That I own two adjacent parcels of land. The Sacketts were prevented from building on land they owned because water on their land was called a wetland by the EPA. The Army Corps of Engineers, other consultants, didn't think it was a wetland, but the EPA did, and the EPA told them, we're going to start fining you $40,000 a day. Now, the Sacketts, they went to court a bunch of times. The building started in 2007, so 16 years later, they never got to build their house. They didn't have to pay the fines, but they faced the fines. They finally won before the court 9-0. to 
Since the EPA was on the losing side, journalists portrayed it as a blow against the environment. And in this case, they do have more of a point than with the last case when it really is not a blow against striking. A bit of a point. Because it was an important concurring decision, five to four, which shrank the definition of wetland. Justice Alito was team adjoining. The captain of team adjacent, however, was Justice Kavanaugh. So there wasn't a clear ideological split here. And yeah, Chuck Schumer did tweet, this MAGA Supreme Court is continuing to erode our country's environmental laws. Make no mistake, this ruling will mean more polluted water and more destruction of wetlands. Yeah, more destruction of wetlands only if you define wetlands as adjoining, not adjacent waters. That's important, as Justices Kavanaugh and Scalia, and probably everyone, the Sacketts, the EPA, everyone, the Army Corps of Engineers, they'd all, they'd all agree with that. Fox News did make sport of Schumer's exaggeration over the 9-0 ruling. Everyone agreed but you, Schumer. But that was kind of unfair. I don't know if the tone or explanation MAGA court really gets there or adds to knowledge. I mean... There's so many ways if you were or if Congress or the body that Schumer serves in were truly worried about the EPA not being able to do its job, they could clarify in law and statute what a wetland is. The courts recommended that. That's not going to happen. But states could define wetlands for themselves in a way that means adjoining, not adjacent. And states will do that. California is very likely to do that. And also, it should be noted that, at least to some extent, the extent that the Sacketts won, the EPA did overreach in this case. In general, if this, if what we're seeing now is the MAGA court apocalypse, it does seem a bit more manageable and reasonable than we were promised. Plus, let's keep in mind that the court's oldest members, the two septuagenarians, are Republicans. And maybe the oldest member of all, Clarence Thomas, just wants to retire to a Harlan Crow built Living Plus type facility. What I'm saying is, yeah, next couple weeks, we're going to have big rulings. But these, the ones we've had so far, even though they've been called very conservative and eroding of our rights and bad for unions and bad for water and bad for the environment and MAGA, in general, they don't seem to put too much of a crimp in progress if they put any of a crimp at all. And the composition, remember, the composition of the court can change. Unlike the work of recriminatory teamsters, jurisprudence is not set in concrete. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is chief concrete officer of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented, and I should also say, and I'm required to do this by decree, Corey War is also the president of Peachfish Local 107, Joel Patterson, the recording secretary. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. and thanks for listening. EPA has said since 77 that adjacent means those wetlands, even if separated by berms, dunes, levees, or dikes.